0: This is Masters in Business with Barry
1: Ritholz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Luis Peruga has a fascinating career as both a tech wizard and investment banker before becoming CEO of Global X. ETFs. They are a $40 billion thematic ETF shop that have some of the most interesting ETFs uh, that are out there. Sure, most of the industry are passive giant uh, ETFs from the likes of Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street, uh, but the space that those shops don't play in are coming up with ideas for themes that that allow investors to focus on a very specific idea within the world of investing, and we discuss everything from their founder-run company ETF. I, I love the stock symbol Boss to lithium to covered coal writing within Nasdaq and S and P, wind power, just on and on. They have uh, uranium, just really fascinating ideas that allow investors to express their investment themes in a very specific, fairly low-cost, professionally managed uh, ETF. I found the conversation fascinating, and I think you will also. If you're at all interested in ETFs, in thematic investing, in looking at the world through a somewhat different perspective than what we assume uh, is standard from the giant ETF uh, companies. I think you'll find this to be really an intriguing conversation. With no further ado, my interview of Global X CEO Luis Baruga. Thank you for having me, Barry. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Before you joined Global X, you were an investment banker at Jefferies. You advised on. M&A, and divestitures, and capital raises, and before that, Morgan Stanley doing technology and operations planning for the Wealth and Asset Management Group. Discuss that background, and how does that lead up to a
2: career in ETFs? You know, great question. So yeah, I had a career in investment banking with Jefferies and it was a, a really good professional experience because I, I did have the opportunity to work in M&A, equity and debt financing, I had a chance to be part of some very interesting transactions in the banking space. I did, in 2013, kind of the largest banking transaction that the market had seen since the financial crisis. It was a $2.4 billion deal, Mm -hmm. and that was a very interesting experience because it really allowed me to to understand the psychology behind M&A, which came in very, very handy later on in the context of, of GlobalX and um, from the standpoint of of Morgan Stanley it was the earlier part in my career and it's mm-hmm. a great company great group of people i i i will be forever thankful to um, to the guys at Morgan Stanley because they gave me the first opportunity to work, to get a full-time job in the U.S. when I first moved from from mm-hmm. Spain. And I learned a lot because I spent a lot of time with financial advisors, which, as you know, is a key segment of our client base today. So a phenomenal uh, learning experience with both Jeffries and Morgan Stanley.
1: So you move here from Spain. What is the financial advice world like in Europe? What's it like in Spain? It has to be such a Different set of the retirement uh, planning is different. The
2: the safety then is different what What's the finance industry like in in Spain? It's fundamentally different. First of all, I think the amount of investors that participate in the financial markets is much smaller than it is in the u s. Mm-hmm. And I think the the um, financial advisors are used, but not as widely used as they are in the u s. And definitely the retail market participation is significantly lower than you can see in huh. in the in the US but i think it's definitely changing very because you know you see more and more fintech platforms and robo advisors that in a way are making access in financial markets Easier for more and more investors in in Spain, and also I think there are a few dynamics, uh, specifically in Spain, where people are really concerned about the sustainability of the traditional pension plans. Mm-hmm. People in Spain, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, they expect to just retire and and have the government give them like a paycheck every month. And I think people are realizing that that's becoming more and more challenging over time, so that's incentivizing more and more investors in Spain to participate in the financial markets, which I think is really positive. So
1: you joined GlobalX in 2014. What led you to them from Jeffries?
2: Great question, so I guess a couple of things. Up until that point, Barry, I was, I had work only for really big companies, Morgan Stanley and Jeffries, so I was definitely looking for something more entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. One of my biggest frustrations with working at a big company, is that they tend to be very bureaucratic. It takes a lot to get things done. So I was definitely looking for something more entrepreneurial where I could see more of an impact of my contributions in the actual output of of the business. So that was definitely one of the key drivers. And then the other driver, Barry, was that I, I saw the potential of the ETF industry, quite frankly. I was already an investor in ETFs at that point in time. I remember telling myself, why would anyone invest in mutual funds when you can buy an ETF instead? You have the liquidity, the tax efficiency, the, the transparency. And I did the math, and I think at that point in time, roughly speaking, uh, assets in ETFs were roughly just 10 12% of mm-hmm. assets in mutual funds. And I was pretty convinced that that number was going to increase significantly. So I saw the opportunity, and that's when GlobalX came along. And
1: where are we now? What percentage of the assets are in ETFs relative to mutual funds? Right
2: now, I think around 33 or 34%. So, uh, tripled since you joined Global Labs. Yeah, 100%. And wow. I think that trend, quite frankly, Barry, is accelerating. And, and my view is that it's going to continue to to increase uh, even faster. I think there are many catalysts, uh, lots of mutual funds to ETFs that we are seeing in the market. I think 401k plans are starting to use ETFs more more broadly mm-hmm. and then some of the new changes around, you know, uh, how you can do actively managed strategies in the context of an ETF. I think that's going to accelerate the adoption of ETFs significantly.
1: Our, our mutual friend Dave Nodig, has joked that if mutual funds came out today, they would never be approved by the SEC. What do you mean you share capital gains with people who haven't sold? That's a terrible idea. And, and clearly, ETFs uh, clean that up. Um, so, not only has the ETF industry been gaining momentum, but Global X has really grown. You're now just about $40 billion in a very challenging year. Tell us what led to this growth. What, what's made you guys as successful? as you've become from a much smaller base a decade ago.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it's been a beautiful ride, to be honest. I joined GlobalX in 2014, and we had, if I remember correctly, approximately one and a half billion dollars in AUM. (laughs) I was employee number 10, and for all intents and purposes, Barry, we were a startup. I right. mean, when I, I joined, I didn't have a computer for 10 days. <laughs> so, you, you had a little bit of that feeling. So, fast forward to where we are today. We have over $40 billion in assets under management. We have 200 employees, and we have a local presence in all of the major markets around the world. And, and to your point, I think there are two main drivers of that growth. One is our leadership in thematic investing. It's an mm-hmm. area that we've been very focused on. And and the second aspect of our strategy that has been very, very helpful is our global expansion. We do believe the growth of the ETF industry is not just a US phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. And we want to be able to service our clients in all uh, regions of the world. So let's
1: talk about the thematic side of it. When it comes to passive there are obviously three giants. It's Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street, and then there's everybody else. But the thematic side seems to be wide open. Is that the thinking, hey, here's here's some open fields. Let, let's let see what we can do here and just leave the behemoths to charge four bips on a and p 500 or a
2: total market uh, fund. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great point. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of the history of GlobalX because I mm-hmm. think it's very relevant. Think about the two founders of GlobalX, Bruno and, and Jose. They set up GlobalX in 2008. And from my standpoint, you have to be a little bit crazy <laughs> to start-
0: In the midst uh, <laughs>
1: of that mess, for exactly. sure. Right?
2: <laughs> it's a oh new ETF business. Um, they did not have much capital and enter the ETF industry to compete with the large the largest asset managers in the world but i think they did something very well from the very beginning they realized that the most effective way to compete was through innovation and that's why very early on they focused on on thematic investing, and they launched, which I believe is the first thematic ETF in the U.S., which was our uh, GlobalX Lithium and Battery Technology. Lit,
1: L-I-T. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that, and that's a big fund, that's a three or four billion dollars, something like that? Yeah,
2: I mean, 12 years later, it wasn't like that at the beginning, <laughs> but 12 years later, it's now grown to be, yeah, roughly speaking, around four billion dollars in, in, in assets, and a very successful strategy. So uh,
1: I told a friend I was interviewing you, he says, why does the world really need another ETF provider? And my answer was, hey, not everybody wants to buy a passive index around the satellite of a core portfolio, or even just, hey, I have an idea. I think this is going to change the world. Is that the, the clients you're aiming for? Is that who the global ex
2: investor is? Yeah, I mean quite frankly, we have institutional investors, we have financial advisors, we have retail clients. But I think the, the main reason behind the, the success and the growth of thematic investing is I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, the world very is changing at the fastest pace that we have seen at any point in history. And what I see from more investors is that they don't think the traditional um, you know the traditional investment approach of looking at historical data to predict future returns is no longer enough many financial advisors and clients are telling us that an investment approach that looks into the future is needed and that's where thematic investing comes into play. And I always use the exact same example. How would you invest in in Google in 1998 or in Facebook in 2003? You could only invest in those companies if you are taking an investment approach that is looking into the future. Because those business models, those products, those services simply didn't exist. And I think, from our standpoint, thematic investing is the approach that allows investors to do just that.
1: Hmm. Makes sense to me.
0: Let's
1: talk about some of your more popular ETFs. But before we drill down to some of my favorites, I have to ask, where do these ideas come from? Some of these are really unusual, different, innovative,
2: how do you guys come up with the theme for a new ETF? Great question. And I mean, I, I guess it comes down to our product development and our research team. Right now we have a team very of over 30 research analysts located all over the world. And basically, all they do is looking at these trends, talking to industry consultants, industry participants, and CEOs to really try to get a sense of where, like, the, the, the most relevant emerging tra- trends are. Um, and once we have, a, I mean, at any point in time, we can have anywhere between 20 to 30 themes that we are looking at. And then, in terms of how we decide what themes we eventually bring to market, we apply like a, a very simple but still robust framework that we have developed over the last 14 years. We look at three things we look at conviction, we look at investability and we look at a um, time horizon. And let me explain that mm-hmm. a little bit. Conviction. So we look at you know whether or not a specific theme is something that we have a high degree of conviction that will be a trend that will definitely have an impact in the economy over the next two or three decades. We look at Decades, two or three decades. Decades. We are not interested in any that is kind of like uh, popular for a couple of years, and I'll get to that in just one second. We're literally Mm -hmm. looking for structural shifts in in the economy. Think of robotics and artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, cloud computing. So that's the first step that we, as a group, try to assess our level of conviction uh, about a, a given theme. Then the second step, which is very important, is investability. We need at least... 25 to 30 companies to be able to launch an, an ETF. So That's a minimum 30 companies. Yeah, From a diversification standpoint, I right. think that's that's the recommended Makes sense. minimum amount of, of companies. And then finally, we look at time horizon to your earlier point, Barry. We are not interested in, in trends that will be popular for a couple of, of years. We are literally looking at disruptive uh, and structural shifts in the economy that in some cases can take decades to to play out. That's how we think about thematic investing.
1: So, one of my pet theories is that half the battle for ETFs attracting assets is the ticker. If you have a catchy ticker, you're halfway there. Am I out in the by myself with that or do you think there's any truth to that?
2: I mean, I, I would say I think that's I partially agree with that. I think, obviously, the ticker is very inter- is very important, particularly for the self-directed retail client base. A catchy ticker can definitely increase the chances of a product to be successful. But I wouldn't discount how much work goes into the product development part of an ETF. Sure. It has to be a good product. It has to be properly designed. Um, and there are lots of uh, decisions that go into creating an ETF. Very. You have to define the theme. Then you have to define the different Buckets within the theme look at liquidity, you know, market cap weighting versus equal weight, rebalancing frequency. So, the product has to be very well designed to be successful. But, yes, if you, on top of that, have an attractive ticker, it can definitely increase the chances of being successful.
1: So, let me talk about some of my favorites of your ETFs. We already mentioned the lithium, we'll come back to that when we talk about some other related. ETFs. Uh, I love this. Founder-run companies. What's the ticker for that? BOSS. How great is that? BOSS for an ETF of companies that are still run by the founders. So the, the first question is, why does that matter? Why does founder-run companies make a difference?
2: I mean, our analysis was that uh, companies that are run by their founders tend to make Long-term investment decisions in in the business versus having the pressure of having to report quarterly earnings and meet like the earnings targets that research analysts, um, you know, tend to assign to every single company. So we do think these companies over the long run could perform better than the broader market. And also, it's an interesting play in the sense that. Uh, founder-run companies tend to take a more uh, cautious approach to business than maybe other type of of companies. So that was the main value proposition behind the founder-run companies. And to your point that it was a very interesting ticker we spent, our product development team spent literally weeks to come up with, with that one.
1: Well, it's brilliant. Let's do another one. The interest rate hedge ETF, stock symbol, rate. That's another great ticker. How do you hedge interest rate risk in an ETF.
2: Well, in this particular case, we are doing that through like o- OTC derivatives. It's a fairly complex product. We tried, for the most part, we tried to follow like a passively managed approach to all of our ETFs. In this particular case, it was very difficult to provide that structure through like a passively managed strategy. So we take a more tactical and active managed approach to that particular uh, product. And we were very lucky because we were able to secure this ticker red, which is definitely it's a very it's a very young product. We just launched a few months ago. Right but we have a, a high degree of confidence that it will be very successful over the, the long run.
1: The timing is pretty good. You, mm. you have an interest rate hedge as rates start to spike up. You literally launched uh, within a month of the first Fed increase. So that's pretty timely. Let's talk about cybersecurity, ticker bug, B-U-G. Tell us
2: what's in the cybersecurity ETF. I mean, cybersecurity is one of our highest conviction themes right now for a number of, of reasons, Perry. First of all, there are 144 billion devices connected to the internet right now. Amazing. Which is great. But at the end of the day, you know, the more devices that you have connect to the internet, the more points of vulnerability there are. So the, the need for cybersecurity is very obvious. We have seen that also in the context of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, where like the, the mm. narrative over the first few weeks was all around cybersecurity and, and those type of things. And the analysis that we've been doing in our research team we expect global cybersecurity spending over the next five years to be around $1.5 trillion. So wow. we have a high degree of of conviction in that theme. And even in the context of a very volatile environment that we have seen over the last four quarters, we continue to see consistent inflows coming into that ETF.
1: And let's talk about what I think is your biggest fund with about $6 billion. <laughs> Is the Nasdaq 100 covered call ETF? You also have an S&P 500 uh, covered call. Why covered calls? What what does that create within the ETF?
2: We think it's a great solution for for clients that are looking for two things: either income mm-hmm. or. Like a risk management tool to play the volatile environment that we have seen in the markets, uh, our flagship product, uh, QILD, which is a Nasdaq 100 cover call ETF with 6.6 billion dollars in AUM, it's right now roughly offering a dividend yield of around 12%. So, wow. if you're an income-oriented investor, particularly bearing the context of, I mean, right now things have changed recently, but we have been for an extended period of time going through like a historically low interest rate environment. Sure. So many of our clients were struggling to find uh, alternative sources of income for their portfolios and this product paying over a 12% dividend dividend yield and monthly distributions was very very attractive for many of our our clients. So
1: so how do you manage the risk that hey if the Nasdaq starts going higher and from the lows in October to now we're up I don't know 10% almost mm. in the in the Nasdaq? how do you manage having the stock called away from you? When you're writing dividends, you're giving someone the right to purchase that stock at a higher price. If you run up to that price, how do you hedge that exposure to make sure the underlying
2: doesn't get called away. That's a good question. What happens? There is the the volatility that you see in, in the market. That's why that's another way in which we are seeing clients uh, using these cover call strategies is almost as a risk management tool because in this environment of high um, levels of volatility, the option premium that you get on that. When you write the option goes up. So effectively when there is more volatility, you get like a higher dividend yield at Mm -hmm. the end of the month. So that's why more and more clients in the context of the last four quarters have been using this strategy as a way to monetize that volatility.
1: So that one is your flagship at six billion dollars. You have some ETFs with, you know, a handful of millions of dollars. At what point are these Break even. What is the self funding level for an ETF? I've heard some people say 25 million, 50 million, 100 million. How much assets does an ETF have to attract before you're confident hey, this is at least a break even?
2: I mean, it can change quite a bit based on the exposure of the of the ETF particularly the geographic exposure in our case roughly speaking the break even point is anywhere between 550 to 100 million dollars in, in AUM which is
1: really a pretty big number it it shows you how challenging it is for some of the smaller ETF companies that you know they have 10 20 30 million dollars in in an ETF you're suggesting that's the money loser for that company.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it depends on the economies of the scale of, of the business that you are you are considering. But when you factor in, you know, legal costs, compliance, portfolio management, trading, there is a lot that goes into launching an, an ETF. So, yeah, I mean, I do think 50 is around the sweet spot in terms of break even. Hmm.
1: So let's talk about some more of these ETFs. But I really want to start by asking, how much horsepower goes into running these funds? You know, you have a pretty sizable workforce. Is this mostly data and operations people or research or trading? What's the underlying uh, human resources that you
2: have to pour into launching a new ETF? Great question. It's a combination of both. And I like to think about it in two different ways. One is when the the ETF is already in the market and is already trading on an exchange, then you, you need a fair amount of resources, you know, portfolio management. Trading resources, portfolio administration, compliance, risk management, and product management people just to make sure that the product is behaving exactly how it's supposed to behave. And right now we have close to 100 ETFs. Obviously, it takes a fair amount of, of resources. And then before you actually launch the product to market, that's when uh, the work is more heavy on the product development and research part of the process. And particularly around thematic investing, Barry, uh, I wouldn't underestimate the amount of resources that you need to bring a thematic ETF to market. Right now we have over 30 research analysts located all over the world, because like I mentioned earlier, uh, the world is changing at the fastest pace that we have ever seen, so there are trends coming up constantly, but also keep in mind there is innovation happening Everywhere. So, in many cases, some of these very disruptive companies are not in the U.S. They may be in China, they may, may be in Vietnam, they may be in South Korea, they may be in Japan. So, it's important that you have a very robust team of research analysts that cover all of these companies. All Asia, nothing in Europe, where you're from? Great question, great question. I mean, there is definitely also interesting companies in the in the European market, but it is true that a lot of the, the, the new trends that we are seeing are coming from some of the largest markets in Asia. Hmm,
1: Interesting. When Global X creates an ETF, are you also creating the underlying index? Are you working with
2: outside index providers? Tell us a little bit about what that process is like. Again, it depends a little bit on the strategy. So if it's, for example, a strategy tracking a NASDAQ index or an S&P or an MSCI, typically you leverage an index that is already available Through the index provider, and maybe you make a couple of little tweaks to make it more uh, relevant to the context of the the exposure that you are trying to to achieve. But in thematic investing, uh, for the most part, the intellectual property that goes into developing the index we do internally with our own research and product development team. Because the reality, you know, I'll tell you like a quick anecdote. In 2010, when we wanted to launch the first ETF, the GlobalX Lithium and Battery Tech ETF, we actually went through the process of calling all of the index providers to see if they wanted to work with us on the development of this idea. and. Pretty much they laughed at us, like, <laughs> what are you guys trying to do, like a lithium ETF? What is that? Who cares? So, right. <laughs> so because of that, we actually had to pretty much do a lot of that heavy lifting in-house, which back in the day, we saw as a challenge, but quite frankly, was the best thing that ever happened to us, because it forced us to develop our own product and research uh, capabilities that right now we're still benefiting from 14 years later.
1: All right, so you mentioned lithium and battery tech, which is about $4 billion, Mm. symbol L-I-T. Let's talk about two others that are sort of sustainable investing related. Mm. Again, back to the ticker, Clean Water, Aqua, A-Q-W-A. Obviously, coming from Spain, Agua is uh, is that. I think a lot of Americans might not have thought that up on themselves. Um, How is the Clean Water ETF doing, and what sort of companies do you hold in in a clean water? I
2: barns? think it's it's one of our newer themes, and what we are seeing, particularly with you know a, a clean water or think about a clean tech, renewable energy producers, there is a significant shift towards a more sustainable world. And I think many of these things are benefiting from that transition. And clean water is definitely is definitely and, one and
1: of we've the, seen massive water supply issues in the United States, not just having available water, California is going through a drought, a lot of the West is, but when you look at what took place in Flint, Michigan, and a whole bunch of other cities whose water infrastructure has fallen apart, there
2: has to be an immense demand for clean water going forward. Yeah, a hundred percent. And we have seen already some policy coming from the White House in the last, you know, quarter where we do think many of these companies are basically dedicated to like, you know, a process water in, in more effective ways, uh, are definitely going to be benefiting from this trend.
1: And uh, how about wind energy or windy? W N D Y. Uh, what sort of uh, companies
2: do you hold in that sort of ETF? So all, all companies that are, are basically involved in the production of the, pro, you know, in the production of of wind. Energy. Are there that many public companies in that space? I I, I, I know
1: GE used to do stuff. Like, uh, it, I'd be hard pressed to name 40 companies in that space.
2: I mean, obviously, it's, it, it's, it goes back to the process that I mentioned before of like looking at conviction, looking at, you know, investability, investability. and time yeah. horizon. That second component is extremely important. The thing is, um, I, I guess a good reminder there, Barry, is that when we think about our thematic ETFs, like this, some of the names that we just we just discussed, like uh, Clean Water, or wind energy, our thematic ETFs are global in nature. So we are not just looking at US companies, we are looking at the entire world. So from that standpoint, there are actually many more companies that you may think um, initially.
1: So so I know there are some British companies in wind energy. There are some uh, Dutch and Norwegian companies. It, so this is a global ETF and it's filled with anybody in that space
2: that, that you think is invested. Correct, and you were talking about Europe before, for example, there's a good Spanish company called Acciona, is also part of that of that index. And generally speaking, this energy transition component is becoming more and more popular in many of the conversations that we are, are having. More recently, uh, one of the ETFs that we're having lots of conversations about is our uranium ETF which is also one of our largest. What's the symbol? U-R-A. Uranium, And it's become extremely uh, top of mind for many of our clients, not just in the U.S., but quite frankly, all over the world. Um, Because of the energy crisis that we are seeing in Europe as a direct result of the conflict between Ukraine and, and Russia. I think more and more investors and more and more market participants are realizing That there is a a very significant need for greater energy diversification, and nuclear energy is becoming you know, widely considered as a very emerge as a very viable solution in that space because of of the lower cost, the reliability, and quite frankly, because it's it's clean from a greenhouse emissions no standpoint. Exhaust, right, and that's why oh. there, there's no surprise that are like right now, over 50 nuclear plants being built in 19 different countries.
1: Really, I know France gets more than half of their electrical power from nukes, and the U.S. used to be 10 or 15 percent, but a lot of those have been mothballed. Are, are we going to see a surge? of new
2: nuclear-powered electrical generation over the next decade? In my opinion, yes, absolutely so. Many of these uh, nuclear plants that are being built right now are mostly in emerging markets. You can think of South Korea, India, China, but we are seeing that shift already in other markets, specifically Europe that um, was kind of like shifting away from nuclear energy for many years. I think right now they are rethinking their approach to their energy mix, again, as a direct consequence of some of the challenges that they are facing with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine.
1: Right. When your biggest supplier of natural gas suddenly becomes hostile, you start looking at other energy sources again. When I think of nuclear power, I think of traditional fission plants, but I know there's been three big innovations recently. One has been the micro plants. Instead of having a giant plant, you can have a small plant. The second are things like thorium powered uh, plants and then there are the fusion plants. What sort of innovation are we seeing in nuclear power production? We,
2: you just don't read about it or hear about it in very many places. I think the number one that comes up, quite frankly, is safety. The technology around making these nuclear plants a lot safer than maybe was the case in the past. Because I think, like, a nuclear energy and uranium has historically had a bad reputation because some of the accidents. You've uh,
1: had accidents, you have storage issues, you have waste disposal issues. How do you deal with that today?
2: But based on you know the the conversation that we're having with research analysts and practitioners in the space, the technology around the, the mm-hmm. development of nuclear energy is a lot safer than it's ever been. So that's why we expect more and more countries adopting nuclear energy as a primary source of energy.
1: I, I recall post Fukushima there was a company that I think Lux Capital was the VC behind it, that came up with a way to take nuclear waste and embed it in certain types of glass or or plastic rods, and you just didn't have the same radioactivity, Uh, so that was the way they they dealt with it. Anyway, uh, it's fascinating that (laughs) that is such a under-the-radar, fast-growing
2: space that I think the average investor is wholly unaware of. You yeah, I mean, the data is there. I think we've seen in that fund, I mean, speaking from memory, Barry, but I think it's roughly $600 million in new assets this year in that ETF alone. Hmm,
1: quite fascinating.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at com.
1: So let's talk a little bit about some of the opportunistic thematic ETFs we've seen in, in the recent Uh, environment. We've seen inflation hedges, inverse funds, interest rate funds. What are the challenges for being opportunistic when, as you said, you're looking out a decade or two on on some of these
2: ideas? I mean, one of the challenges, I guess, points of clarification when we talk around thematic investing is that, in a way, very thematic has almost become a catch-all Category. So when market participants or investors don't know exactly how to categorize an ETF, they automatically refer the ETF as um, as a thematic ETF. But we do think um, thematic investing is a very robust investment approach that consists on two, you know, very simple but powerful steps. One is we look at very powerful, disruptive, macro-level trends that we think will shape the economy over the coming decades. And two, we look at the companies that stand to benefit from the materialization of those trends. Um, And that's a very, very clear definition. So, many of these ideas, like inflation hedge or interest rate hedge, they wouldn't really fall within our definition of thematic investing, because they are cyclical in nature. Mm -hmm. They will be like a reversal To them, and I think it's very, very important that we think of thematic investing in as a as a forward-looking investment approach. And I think there is some confusion in the marketplace from that standpoint. But going back to your point about like kind of being opportunistic and and being able to react to market conditions, typically you can expect. Uh, for an ETF issuer to take anywhere between six to nine months to launch a new ETF to market.
1: Six to nine months. Wow. That's actually faster than I thought. Go back a couple of years, you want to create a mutual fund. It used to take a year or two to get everything had to be approved. And now, as long as you have everything lined up, the process seems to be pretty streamlined.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you start from scratch and you have to set up your own trust and look for a new new independent board and apply to the SEC for the proper approvals, then it may take a little bit longer than that. But for a business that is already up and running, where you already have your trust, mm-hmm. you already have your registered investment advisor, you have your board, um, it's a much more streamlined process than maybe it was a few years ago.
1: Hmm. You know, a lot of the thematics we've seen, they run 75, 85, even 100 basis points. Global X averages between 50 and 60. How have you managed to keep your fees competitive versus some of the other thematic ETF funds?
2: I think um, it's all relative. I don't think fees are high or low in absolute terms. is is relative, right? It's, it's a function of the complexity of the product and the value that you get from the ETF sponsor. In our case, for example, like think about S and P 500 ETF, or right? NAS the three one.
1: or four basis points. Yeah, they are free practice. Exactly,
2: because in that particular case, you know, developing an index like that is pretty straightforward. You can pull some data from your Bloomberg terminal, and then you are pretty much good to go. But when uh-huh. you think of thematic. ETFs, for example, is a much more complicated process because you have to make lots of decisions. You know, Developing a thematic ETFs is a pretty complex process. You have to first identify the theme, then you have to identify the different categories within that theme, and make uh, important decisions around liquidity, uh, market cap weighting versus equal weight, liquidity filters. And remember, for thematic investing, our approach is Global. So we look at any company in the world that could have exposure to cybersecurity, for example, Mm -hmm. or cloud computing, and that requires um, a fair amount of manpower to bring that product to market. And on top of that, we use our research, our ETF model portfolio business to really explain to our clients how to invest in those ETFs. So I think the value that we provide to our clients is very significant.
1: So you mentioned market cap weighting versus ETF weighting. Tell us about the thought process. How do you decide one way or another, what is Global X's preference?
2: In most cases, we follow what we call a modified market cap winning approach. Particularly around thematic investing, we do think that's the optimal approach for for a couple of reasons. So, first, um, in, from our standpoint, you want to for these thematic ETFs, these are younger industries where you still don't really know who the winners and losers mm-hmm. will be, right? So, you want to have as much exposure to the theme as a whole rather than trying to pick the winners or or the losers. And we do think like a modified market cap approach is the most relevant.
1: When you say modified, so it's not straight market cap, there are probably
2: ceilings and floors, is that how that works? Exactly, so basically bigger companies are a bigger part of the index, but we have caps of like 8%, 10% Mm -hmm. 10 or 12% of the company based on the index. And the classical example here, Barry, is, for example, our e-commerce ETF. We fo- follow like a market cap approach, but you don't want to be in a situation in which Amazon right. becomes 45% right. of the index. That's why we have the, the weight of each company anywhere between 8% to 12% as a way to mitigate mm. that idiosyncratic risk.
1: What are your thoughts on some of the inverse funds that are out there? Last year we saw the introduction of the inverse ARC. Uh, This year we saw the inverse Kramer. There's some really wacky ETF ideas. Do you guys ever consider that or do you just look at those as, you know, novelties?
2: Not really, that's not part of our our business. Very, I think, like the large majority of our clients are long-term oriented in investors, and that's what we typically try to focus on. I mean, I I, I do think there is a market for leverage and inverse ETFs out there, but from our standpoint, we try to stay away from those type of strategies because we don't think they incentivize the right type of investor behavior.
1: It's it's more speculative than it is investing.
2: Yeah, I think it's like obviously there are some sophisticated institutional clients that they really know what they are doing and maybe mm-hmm. they use those ETFs as very useful trading tools, but I think anything that can potentially have can be accessible by retail clients, I think we have a responsibility as an industry to be very careful about.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about managing through volatility. 2020 was a huge year. We were up 18% and I think it was like up 68% from the pandemic lows. 21, we're up 28%. Then this year where everything falls out of bed, uh, market down 25%, bonds down 15%. How do you manage through volatility like we've seen in 2022?
2: You know, great question. I mean, without a doubt, it's been a very challenging market environment. We've had geopolitical issues, the highest level of inflation that we have seen in the US in 40 years, and still supply chain issues due to to COVID-19, so it's been a very challenging year but you know our business continues to, to do well. I mean we've seen this year roughly between you know three and four billion dollars in in new assets and we are having very good um conversations with clients that I think at current valuation levels they remain you know very interested in the market and they see some some opportunities. But to be honest with you um Barry from our standpoint we don't really make any material changes in how we think about the business because of of the market environment you know we we had a really good 2020 we had a really good 2021 in terms of inflows. This year has not been as good in terms of inflows, but from my standpoint, it's been a phenomenal year because we continue to execute on our strategy, we continue to launch interesting products, we continue to take care of our clients, and I think over the long run, that's what really matters.
1: If you can execute and attract clients and keep clients in a year like this, you're doing great. It's hard to argue with this sort of baptism of fire. I I think a lot of people were genuinely surprised by 2022. Uh, Wait, markets go down? I I thought they only went up. It's been eye-opening for a lot of the younger traders, younger investors who, I don't know, you go back to
2: since 2009, they've only seen up markets. A hundred percent, and I think, and I actually do have that very conversation with the junior members of our team because if you just started in the industry four or five years ago, you think markets only go up, right? And I think it's is when you've gone through the financial crisis in 2008 when I was working with Morgan Stanley or or even later on, you know, December of 2018. March that fourth of, quarter was that, down 20%. was a big drop. Yeah, it was terrible. And we had just been acquired by Mireille Asset and there was a lot of like eyes in the performance of our business. And it was a challenging uh, quarter or March of 2020 with uh, COVID, COVID-19. But I think when you've done this long enough, quite frankly, that doesn't really matter in the long term. So I always told the team, let's do the right thing. Things with the right uh, team at the right time, and let's focus on the long term. And if we do that, we'll just be fine.
1: You know, I, I haven't asked you about China. You have a handful of smaller funds that have been China-focused. What's it like investing there, especially with the local versus overseas investors? It seems like they've been an unusually challenging region to put money
2: uh, to work in. I mean, of course, of course, we've seen a lot of volatility coming out of China. But Barry, we have a ton of experience dealing with with China. I mean, one of our first ETFs was our China Consumer ETF that we launched in two thousand nine, wow. and then we launched uh, in December of twenty eighteen. We launched a full suite of China sector ETFs tracking MSCI indices. And it was a direct reaction to client demand. I think, um, at the end of the day, it's the second largest economy in the world and it's an increasingly diversified economy. So we were getting questions from clients that they wanted to play China, but they didn't want to just buy the China large cap product, they wanted to invest in China healthcare or China technology or China energy. So we came to market with what I think is the only a family of China sector ETFs that offers all of the ETFs. And it's been challenging at times, very but going back to the point of product development, the, the, if you are following a robust product development process, you should not experience any challenges in dealing with these markets for a number of reasons. Because it's part of the index methodology that you are accounting for some of these potential challenges. For example, you include filters around average daily trading volume. For liquidity. For liquidity. Or, for example, you don't include companies that have less than $100 million in market cap. So if a company drops below that level, it's automatically removed from the index at the next rebalance. And by doing so, you eliminate the The challenge of having to trade in some of those illiquid names. and again, we've been trading um, our China consumer ETF for almost thirteen years, and we haven't faced any significant challenges because again, our portfolio management team and our product team have plenty of experience dealing with these markets
1: so how much marketing goes into rolling out a new ETF uh, you know when we, we see every day I see a list of new ETFs that come out or every week and some of them are always kind of surprise me I don't understand why anybody is rolling that out and every now and then something will come out and like oh clean water of course that makes perfect sense how do you market this to the advisor community how do you market this to the investing public
2: great question I mean I think Without a doubt, in, in the ETF industry, I think marketing is extremely important, particularly for a company like X that is still like an up-and-coming ETF player because it's important. Brand awareness is critical. I mean, people will not come to buy our ETFs if they don't know that GlobalX ETFs exist. So, mm-hmm. so we have been uh, investing in marketing for several years, purely from a brand awareness standpoint. But that aside, the way we actually market our ETFs for retail clients and financial advisors is mostly through our research, right? I think ever since uh, we started the business, because we were very, very small, we realized that we needed to give ourselves the credibility in the space that we didn't have because of our size, mm-hmm. and we did that through research. So we have what, in my opinion, of course, very I'm biased, but, but I think we have the most robust research platform in the ETF industry. And, and I think our clients appreciate that, because when they invest in a global ETF, they're not just buying uh, an ETF product, they, are, they have access to our research analysts. they can come to our website, and pretty much on a daily basis, we are uh, providing content to our clients so they can really understand the dynamics behind the products in which they are investing. And that's very powerful.
1: Huh. So I know you obviously think thematics have a lot of room to grow, what sort of directions do you think thematic ETFs are
2: going to head into? What's next for the ETF space? I mean, I think, in terms of going back to the comment I made earlier, very innovation is just happening uh, anywhere in the world and at the fastest space that we have ever seen in history. So you would be surprised how, you know, we have right now there is six thematic ideas Well, there is no shortage of ideas. Uh, there are lots of different areas in which we are looking uh, at. You can think things like quantum computing. There is a lot of activity in the digital assets space, even though right now there is a lot of like noise in the market around that particular uh, theme. But we continue to see plenty of opportunity. And again, it's not just um, a U.S. phenomenon. We've seen this growth in other markets around the world. I mean, just in the U.S., if you look at assets in thematic ETFs five years ago, the number was roughly $5 billion. And at the end of 2021, we're talking about $120 billion in AUM. Very significant pattern coming out of Europe as well. So
1: take us through the process. Somebody, one of the researchers comes to Mm. you, Luis, I have this great idea for a Mm. thematic investment. It's X. Mm. What is the process like from turning that idea into an actual
2: ETF? So the first thing is, we challenge ourselves. Does this idea make sense? So let me use an example. Uh, Let's say electric vehicles, which obviously is an ETF that we already have. But let's say what's the symbol on that? D R I V Drive. Drive. Hopefully you like that ticker too. Yeah, Uh, no, it's great ticker. I picked that one, so that's why I'm particularly particularly (laughs) proud. So. so this idea comes in from our, one of our research or product analysts, and we have a product development committee meeting in which someone suggests electric vehicles. And of course, they put forward a very robust analysis where they look at target addressable market, penetration rate, and then more like industry dynamics. And in this particular case, it's very obvious that it is a significant shift towards a more sustainable world, right? You have uh, lots of catalysts towards more adoption of electric vehicles. Um, government support, incentivizing clients to buy electric vehicles. The cost of electric uh, batteries has gone down significantly because of the cost of uh, lithium batteries coming down significantly. And even the charging infrastructure behind um, the adoption of of electric vehicles is getting better and better. And on top of that, it's still very early because electric vehicles sales double in 2021 and that is still 9% of total car sales wow. so the potential is very very significant so we look at all of this data and we make the assessment that is an uh, a part of is a theme that could be very powerful over the coming decades. so the next step is we look at okay are there enough public companies whose products and services are dedicated to provide exposure to electric vehicles and that's when our research and product teams working closely with index providers, come up with um, companies that typically get at least 50% of their revenues from the electric vehicles space. And then once we have like a universe of like 40, 50 companies, that's when we start refining that process with our portfolio management team, our portfolio administration team, just to make sure in terms of liquidity, capacity of the strategy um, makes sense. And once we have a preliminary index, that's when we start the process of bringing that ETF to market.
1: So I could see clearly uh, Tesla, Lucid, Rivian, some clear, pure ETFs. You have the battery companies, which is Panasonic to everybody else. Um, There's Electrify America. There are all these network charging. What do you do with companies like Ford, for example, which has been very aggressive in rolling out ETFs. Clearly, it's not half of their business, but they're moving in that direction. We look at Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, just a huge run of ETFs. And then we see the Korean companies, Hyundai, Kia, also very aggressively pushing into ETFs. At what point do the legacy automakers become electrified enough that you would think about putting them into that ETF?
2: That's a great question, Barry, and it's uh, it's, uh, a very, very important part of our product development process. And that's something that we've been very careful over the years, because at the end of the day, when a client buys one of our thematic ETFs, we want to make sure they get the exposure that they are looking for. And to your point, do you want to include a company like Ford in an electric vehicle CTF if maybe like 5% of their revenues is coming from electric vehicles? Then is that really the exposure that our clients are looking for? Probably not. So it may change on the product or the theme, but typically we apply a 50% revenue threshold for inclusion in the theme. In this particular case for, for car companies, is relatively straightforward. That may be a little bit more challenging in other areas like genomics and biotechnology, because right. many of these companies don't have revenue to begin with, so it's right. challenging. But then we look at things like um, research and development, the type of products that they offer to really make sure that we, as a, as a group, as our product development team, uh, feels uh, strongly that that company should be included in the theme that we are trying to provide exposure to.
1: So it'll be interesting to see how long it will be before Mercedes, BMW, Ford, even GM hit that 50% number because I don't think that's 20 or 10 years off in the future. That that could be five years off in the future Ford is 50% electric or
2: electric hybrid. Yeah, I mean, from, from the information that we are um, right now reviewing, all of these companies have a very aggressive, a strategy towards uh, the production of electric vehicles or hybrids, but they are all actively looking into the space because they can clearly see the trend. If anything, quite frankly, governments around the world and this um, focus towards a more sustainable economy is very, very clear. So I think many of these car manufacturers can see the writing on the wall.
1: So let me throw you a curveball before we get to our favorite questions, and that's how often you get back to. Uh Spain, every time I've been to Spain I've left just delighted and I, I'm looking forward to going back. When was the last time you you went back? And exactly. the answer
2: is the answer is I don't go back enough to be honest with you. But uh, I I usually go there every single Christmas to see, mm-hmm. because my family. I mean I I've been now in the US for 20 years and I have my own family here in in New York in in Brooklyn. But the rest of my family is still in Spain. So 100 percent I go there always for Christmas because it's a very special part of the year for for Spanish people and and our and our culture. Where in Spain? It's a very small town called La Roda. Albacete. I would be very surprised if you know about it because even people from Spain <laughs> don't know about it. It's two hours. If you go from Madrid towards Valencia, uh-huh. it's approximately right in the middle, like two hours away.
1: So the Spain parts of Spain that I'm familiar with, Bilbao, where, where the Guggenheim Museum is, which is lovely, um, San Sebastian, which is one of the most lovely spots in the world, and then, of course, Barcelona, the last time I was in Barcelona was in the midst of the Catalonian uprising, so everything was closed. People were a million people marching in the streets. It was it was very um, peaceful and well organized. But when you see a literally a million people marching past the police headquarters, which is across the street from our hotel. It, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. It, it was amazing.
2: Yeah, it's, it's definitely been a very, very um, big part of the political conversation in Spain now for, for many years. And unfortunately, for the last five or six years, uh, those type of conversations around the independence of Catalonia from Spain seem to, to escalate. But unfortunately, the conversation seems to have won down a little bit, which I think is good.
1: See, I, I think there were more Michelin star rated restaurants in uh, Barcelona than I think in Paris. I think than any other city, you, you Google Michelin star rated restaurants and up comes a list of like 40 places. It was It was really, it's an amazing city. It's beautiful. The one thing that whenever I visit Europe and I come back home is, wow, those folks really know how to kick back relax a little bit and enjoy life. It feels like in New York it's just go, 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 work, work, work. The Europeans have a much
2: more chill approach to to dealing with life. Do you miss that at all here yeah, in New York? Yeah, I, I, cert, I certainly do. There is definitely like a different pace to life when you go to Europe, particularly in Spain. I mean, if you go, uh, to Southern Europe is even more different from you know with respect to, to for example, New York and I definitely I definitely um, miss that I think one of the the biggest benefits of a country like Spain is that uh, you can live very comfortably with not a lot of money and I think quality of life is is overall like. Uh, better than what you can see in, in, for example, New York.
1: It's less stressful to say the very least. They know how to eat, they know how to drink wine, they know how to just kick back and relax. I think we can all learn a little bit. Uh, At least I feel like I would like to learn how to throttle back a little bit. They have it down to, every time I'm there I'm like, God, it's beautiful. Everybody seems to be very happy and, and chill. It, it's really a
2: wonderful part of the world, you know. And things have definitely changed. But I mean, growing up, very I mean, my, my parents, my mom and my dad, they were both teachers, like uh, middle mm-hmm. school teachers. And we used to go to school in the morning, and then go back home. We would have lunch as a family. We would take a nap, <laughs> and then we would go back to 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 school. So it was definitely like a different pace. And even today, like I'm, you know, texting with with my friends, and they are getting ready for the holidays, and they are having dinner at you know nine, ten. 11 p.m. So it's definitely like a different, different pace. And I think there is, um, but it goes both ways. For example, when I'm so used now to the New York lifestyle, that the when speed, I, yeah. the speed. That when I go back to Spain and I have to go to the bank to do some sort of uh, <laughs> a transaction, and it takes forever. I, I do get very frustrated. So I guess it's like a double-edged sword. <laughs>
1: you, you have to learn how to leave the New Yorker behind. Like when I go on vacation, it's 24 hours before my walking pace begins to (laughs) slow down although i can tell you i can very much embrace the idea of midday siesta i i can if i could work that into my routine i think my my level of chill will be much better than it is uh currently it's a it's something that we very much can learn here from from
2: europe Absolutely, I think that you should definitely look into that.
0: <laughs> the countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
1: So let's jump to my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests, starting with what kept you entertained uh, during the lockdown in Brooklyn? What were you watching
2: or, or listening to? I mean, honestly, I don't watch a ton of TV. I think I mentioned earlier, I have like a four and a half year old that keeps me really entertained, and between that and Global Age, I don't have a ton of time, so I really try to watch documentaries uh-huh. because they are definitely shorter in nature, so I don't have to watch three seasons to you know finish the story. Right. So um, I really, I've really, i been really into business documentaries lately. Uh, I watch a HBO documentary on Warren Buffett, which is someone that I mm-hmm. deeply admire. Was also watching recently a documentary around Enron, which I didn't know the the story. It's uh, a hell of a story. It's a hell of a story. I mean, I knew a little bit, but I. I and was now a, we're living through it all over again. I know. With this, <laughs> it's actually, very very relevant. And I guess the last couple of days I've been watching a documentary about FIFA and and the World Cup.
1: You know, it's funny because I was a World Cup fan like twenty years ago, and I just fell in love with the pace of the game. And this year, it just seems like it's become so politicized in Qatar and the no beer, and it's just it's just kind of crazy. Um, but I watched the U.S. Wales mm-hmm. match. I, I've never seen a, a draw that felt like a loss. You know, <laughs> it was like, wait, what? I, spoiler alert! I hope I uh, hope everybody has already uh, already watched that. But it's a lot of fun to watch, isn't it?
2: I love it, and and quite frankly, I mean, it's when I I grew up playing sports. It's a big part of who I am, um, and I just love watching the the World Cup. It is true that this year's World Cup feels, for whatever reason, a little bit uh, different. But I will tell you, I mean, when I first moved to Chicago from Mm -hmm. Spain, this was two thousand three, which is crazy. It's been like already twenty years ago. if you, if I wanted to go to a restaurant or a bar to watch the game, it was really difficult to find a, a really? restaurant or a bar. This is two thousand three, uh-huh. like literally four years later. Uh, definitely, I, I think because of the women's uh, soccer team and how did so well in the good Olympics, they the Yeah, there was definitely a, a lot more attention towards towards this sport because in literally like four years, you were able to watch games everywhere. But there was definitely like a, a big transition there.
1: I found World Cup because. I, around the same time, 2002, 2003, my wife and I are on a cruise. And you run around all day and then you come back to the room about three in the afternoon and it's take a nap before dinner and I would flick on the TV and there was World Cup. Or I would go to the one of the bar and the whole staff is watching World Cup. And it was really fascinating. Uh, you have to give it a little time to get into the ebb and flow of the game, and suddenly you find it's so different than football or baseball. It just has these natural waves. It it, it was a lot of fun, and I, I look forward to it every couple of years. It's really a blast.
2: You no, know, I mean, 100% when I was in Chicago, I mean, one of the, probably my best experiences in Chicago was when Spain won the World a- Cup in 2010. All of my friends I was working with, Morgan Stanley at that time, all of my friends and I went to like a bar by the Chicago, River and you know we won, of course. They were very happy for me, and then it was it was a long, long day for all of us. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs>
1: uh, let's talk about some of your mentors who helped shape your career.
2: I mean, this may sound. I mean, of course, there are lots of people that have helped my career over the years. and people that have been very helpful. So this may come across as maybe maybe a little bit too touchy feely, but I would actually say my mom and my dad, Barry, because. At the end of the day they they've worked very hard they worked very hard when I was growing up to give me like a really good education and that's something that i'm very very thankful for because they they were teachers so they don't have many resources and they work very very hard and quite frankly because of the values that you know over the years they kind of made me aware out because at the end of the day things like you know being thoughtful being kind uh work ethic positivity I think you learn that. At home, and you know whether you realize it or not. I think every single decision that you make in life is made through the lens of your values, and that's why I think it's it's so important. And I'm very thankful to my parents for that.
1: Good, good answer. You're you're not the only person who have brought up their parents or their or their father as as a as a key mentor. I, I hear it pretty regularly. Uh, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites, and what are you reading right now?
2: One of my favorite books is uh, A Man's Search for Meaning. -hmm. By Viktor Frankl. Yeah, it's about the experiences of a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp, and it goes through like you know some of the challenges. It's about you know inner strength, positivity, resilience, and it's a book that I always find extremely useful, particularly when you are going through a rough time in life, which obviously it can happen to all of us. I always find myself going back to that book because it really helps me put things in, in perspective.
1: Right, everything is relative. And no matter how bad your day is, it ain't that bad, relatively speaking.
2: A hundred percent. So I, I've always find myself going back to that book. And then now more recently, definitely like a different, more, more of an easy read. I'm reading a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, the value proposition is very simple. It's about how Little adjustments in love in your life can lead to really remarkable outcomes. And I'm finding it's very it's a very easy read, but very interesting uh, takeaways. I, I'm
1: trying to remember who who said the quote: "You build your habits, and then your habits build you." Um, and and I I I've have that book at home in my queue.
2: I haven't gotten to it, uh, but I've heard really good things about it. I strongly recommend it because it gives you first of all it highlights the importance of having good habits but it goes beyond that. It's actually giving you some practical examples of how you can create habits in a much easier way. So very, very powerful.
1: What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in either investing or ETFs or working uh, thematically?
2: I think it would be, to just try to talk to as many people in the industry as as you can. I think, you know, particularly in our case you know, of of the ETF industry and asset management, talk to portfolio management managers, product development teams, research analysts to try to really get a good sense of what our industry is about. And if you do that consistently, I think a few things will happen. One is that you will learn a lot about the industry. Two, whenever you make the final decision of entering the industry, that decision will be a much more informed decision than if you had not gone through this this process. And finally, quite frankly, I would not be surprised if you end up working for one of the people that you actually interviewed over that kind of networking process. Really interesting.
1: And our final question, what do you know about the world of thematic ETFs, investing, investing? Um, and just exchange traded funds today. You wish you knew 25 years or so ago when you first began your career.
2: Probably the biggest lesson is that the investment management industry is is is, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, I think patience is probably one of the most underestimated skills in, in our industry, and I think it's incredibly important. And I was definitely very impatient in my early 20s, but I think, I want to think at least that over the years I've become much more patient and, and I take my time to make some of the more, more important decisions and I definitely think more with a long-term horizon in mind.
1: Right, get rich slowly is always good advice. 100%. Luis, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Luis Baruga. He is CEO of Global X ETFs. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous 450 discussions we've had over the previous eight or nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast@ at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps us put these conversations together each week. Bob Bragg is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Paris Wald is our producer. Sean Russo is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg
0: Radio.